You're listening to Informed, informal chats about theological topics to help us know and understand God together. Informed. Informed. Hi everyone, welcome to Informed. This week's episode is a continuation of the conversation I had with Matt Fell about the Trinity. So if you haven't listened to part one, you might want to go back and listen to that first. Um, In any case, uh, we're going to dive in now to a particular question about how the Father and the Son relate to each other. Is the Father, therefore, in charge of the Trinity? This is... This is a sticky question throughout the centuries, um, but it's one that, particularly in reformed evangelical churches like ours, has has particularly been felt quite recently. Um, So I'll answer the question directly, and then we can maybe talk about why it's a bit of a thorny issue at the moment. Um, So... Essentially, the the answer is no, because there's n- although the Father is the source of the Trinity, he's like the fountainhead, um, giving life to the Son and the Spirit eternally. There was never a point at which the Father was on his own and decided, oh, this is a good idea to initiate this. He is eternally with his son, eternally with his spirit. Um, and everything that the father is, with the exception of being the father, is shared with the son. And so that, that means that the, the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, the holiness, the justice, the truth of God, is equally the son's and the spirit's as it is the father's. And importantly, the will of God. Right. Absolutely, yes. So, yeah, they are perfectly one, united. Um, and so there is there is one undistinguishable will of God that is shared between the three. Um, now, there is, as we've seen, there's, there's an order within the life of God, within the movement, the Father eternally speaks his word and sends forth his spirit. Um And that order is reflected in the mission of the Son and the mission of the Holy Spirit. So the it's fitting. This is the best language that we can have, really. It's fitting that the Son, the word of the Father, is the one who is sent into the world to reveal the Father. And it's fitting that the gift of God is the one who comes and lives in the believer and... Uh, unites us with Christ but that and it's fitting and it's fitting that in his incarnation Jesus submits to the will of the father yes yeah but but it, the key thing you know, what you said there Simeon is in the incarnation so in the incarnation of Christ uh, so in the incarnation of the son you have one divine person the eternal son, inseparable from the father and the spirit, who unites to his divine nature, human nature. So human nature is taken up into the life of God. And so in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, you have two 
natures, each possessing its own will. You have the divine will and the human will. And they're in perfect unity together. But over the course of Jesus's life, you, you see that unity played out under duress. So if you think about uh, comments in the life of Jesus, where he says, I only do what I see my father doing. Well, that that's the, the human nature of Christ reflecting the unity between the son and the father. Um, but it's, it's realized in the human actions of Jesus Christ, him having to pray day and night. You know, Jesus's prayer life is robust. Um, and you think, why? If everything we've said about the Trinity is true, why is Jesus continually taking himself off to pray? But it's it's because of the hum- that's what human nature united to divinity needs. Mm. Prayer is that. It is our union with God. And Jesus's life is full of prayer because it is the life of a human creature united with God. Or, of course, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, when Jesus knows what's before him, he prays, not my will, but your will be done. And that's that's the human will of Christ coming into conformity with the divine will. Um, or maybe not coming into conformity. That language is probably unhelpful, actually. It, it's the human will of Christ demonstrating, manifesting its conformity. Um, and feeling all the things that are natural to feel as a human being um but but ultimately you know conforming to the will of god or or Mm. demonstrating its conformity to the will of god and and so uh augustine has a really helpful sermon on the garden of gethsemane and and he says you know it's also christ teaching us uh, it's in that moment jesus is communicating to us that he feels our i don't want to come come under the will of god um because it's going to be scary and painful and i have to lay myself down but he's also teaching us to do so um mm. and so and we wouldn't have that unless he made that prayer explicit which is why he takes the disciples into the garden although they fall asleep <laughs> mm. And some people have have wanted to sort of take that dynamic of submission and and see that operating before the incarnation. Yeah. Okay. And and you're saying that gives us problems. Yeah. So um, it's a very old school problem <laughs> um, in the debates in the fourth century about the Trinity. Um, the the kind of bad guys in the story. Uh, so. A bishop called Arius. Was he a bishop? No, I don't think he was. He was an elder. Elder called, called Arius. Um, and then the kind of posse that followed him afterwards. Um, they had all sorts of problems with the idea of, of, a tr- of the Trinity. And they seized upon the language in the New Testament of the Son submitting to the Father and said, well, that can't, that can't be union then. That can't be one God. This must be two different beings. So sure, the Son must be glorious maybe the first thing that god ever created but he can't be one with um the father if we see him submit and so the church had to think very hard as to what's going on in the incarnation there more recently 
the idea of eternal submit the son eternally submitting to the father has been kind of um well, resurrected is the wrong word it's kind of had a zombie existence <laughs> it's kind of come back from the dead uh but amongst people i'm far more sympathetic to not bad guys in the story um so i can see your bookshelf behind you simeon have you got a copy of wayne grudem systematic theology on there uh, he's on the pile to my left that you can't see Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology uh, is a wonderful, wonderful book. And it's on the shelves of, I mean, it's probably on the shelves of over 50% of the leaders in our family of churches, I would I would wager. Um, and Grudem's done a, you know, a great job of encouraging Bible-loving evangelicals to think systematically, to kind of, to take what scripture says and to put the, the pieces of the jigsaw together. Um, there's lots which I'm very grateful for, for Wayne Grudem. Um, but he has recently argued that the son eternally submits to the father. Um, and he's done so alongside another uh, great evangelical theologian called Bruce Ware, um, and the two of them have made the argument in the case, uh, in the context of um, debates about gender roles in, in church and family. So the debate between complementarians, those who hold that male and female are, are different, are e equal in dignity, but different in roles. Uh, and egalitarians who would say that there's not really any difference between the, the two, and the, at least when it comes to roles. Um, and Wayne, uh, Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware have argued from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where it says that um, the head of uh, the head of woman is man, and the head of man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. And they've said that 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 suggests that. Headship and submission exists within the life of God. That, that's the, the claim that they made. And then it all kicked off. <laughs> Lots of people then argued about it. And egalitarians pushed back against that, saying, no, you've misunderstood the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and then also complementarians um, started to say, actually, we, we hold that male and female are equal but different. And we don't think that this text is the proof text for it. Um, so Carl Truman would be one figure who was quite public in doing that. Uh, actually, the, the chaplain of my college, uh, a guy called Mark Smith, very bravely kind of put his head up the parapet about that. Uh, I don't know, five or six years ago, got a lot of trouble in conservative circles in the Church of England. Um, but I, I think these guys are right. Uh, as in the people pushing back against Grudem and Ware, um, because to submit, for me to submit to you, Simeon, in, requires me to have a will and you to have a will and for my will to come in alignment with your will. For us to have different takes and opinions about things and for me to ultimately bring mine in line with yours. But that introduces separate wills within the persons of the trinity that disregard the unity um which is taught in scripture and um 
that the church has always affirmed in the life of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, and so the debate has kind of gone back and forth a number of times on this. So uh, I'm just trying to think what would be the useful things to talk about. So for quite a long time, Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware um, denied the idea of the eternal generation of the sun that we talked about earlier on. Um, they just, they didn't think it was a, they didn't think it was sufficiently biblical an idea. Um, and to be honest, I'm not really sure why they denied it. They've actually changed their opinion on it. So in the latest edition of Systematic Theology, Wayne Grudem now says, previously I denied this, now I'm, I'm happily on board of the eternal generation train. Um, but, um, but, but Grudem still holds that there is, well, he, he talks about there being one willing God realized three times, three di different ways. And I just, I, I can't make sense of that myself um, as to how you have one united will shared between the three that is realized in three different ways. That seems to me to be a contradiction. How can, how can one will have three realized, three manifestations of it? Um, on the gender question, is it fair to say that whatever view you take about um, the differences or not between men and women doesn't have to hang on Trinitarian doctrine? If, if nothing else, you see the son submitting to the father in his incarnation, and perhaps that gives you a model for how submission should work, regardless of what happened before. Is that helpful? <laughs> Yes, absolutely. So <clears throat> um, I think it's, I, yeah, I'm a convinced complementarian uh, and I don't, I just don't think we have to go there with the interpretation of First Corinthians. I think it's just there explicitly in other passages of scripture. It's there in the logic of the Genesis account, uh, in the, the descriptions of God's people throughout history, the choices that Jesus makes, um, you know, in, in assigning apostles and then how those apostles then build churches and then what Paul teaches in, in uh, 1 Timothy 2 um, amongst, and then in other places as well. I, I don't think we have to... It strikes me as being a bit desperate, if I'm honest. It's almost a bit conspiracy theory, like, you know, this goes all the way to the top. Uh, like, it just seems problematic to me and muddies the waters and tries to has to invent new things and i think that's that's problematic um but what's interesting about first corinthians so i would read when paul says um you know the head of christ is god i i read that as referring to the incarnation um and that then means that Jesus gives us our picture of what headship and submission looks like. Jesus embodies both. And I, and I think to say that Jesus only... Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, let me wind that back slightly. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a really important and beautiful thing, that Jesus then demonstrates to us not only what headship looks like, so Ephesians 5, you know, 
Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. He also demonstrates in his submitting to the father what submission looks like. You know, and the father, uh, you know, Jesus, the father gives his glory to Jesus. Think about Philippians 2, you know, the son submits to the father, is obedient to the point of death. And then the the father raises the son up and, and gives him a name above every other name so that every knee in heaven and earth will bow. Um, and so I think that that gives us a beautiful uh, way of thinking about headship and submission, which holds them in equal dignity because Christ takes both roles onto himself. He is he submits before, you know, the, the father in heaven in his incarnation and he is the head of the church. And do you think how how important is that how if, if someone if someone was saying to you no I, I really convinced by Wayne Grudem's position I don't you know I think there is submission in the Trinity before the incarnation would you say that's uh, a really big deal um, or is it one of these kind of theological um, I's and T's that needs to be dotted and crossed but a bit less consequential well I think I have a pragmatic response to that and uh and a theological conviction about it, and they're slightly different, <laughs> uh, or they look like they're going in different directions. So I think, pragmatically, there are bold, courageous, Bible-loving Christians who I deeply respect and love, who hold to the eternal submission of the Son to the Father, and that idea. Grudem and Ware themselves, you know, I'm so grateful for both of them have lots to learn from both of them so you can be a christian uh, and a fruitful um godly christian and hold to those things um and you can hold to more orthodox uh accounts of the trinity and and be squiffy and all sorts of things so you know the pragmatist in me kind of says well you know if you've listened to this and you think fell you've not really convinced me you know i'm not i'm not pronouncing over you that you know you're um, to be separated from the church or anything like that <laughs> uh but on the other hand i do think it matters and i think you know i think to my friends who would hold that position i'd say let's go to the pub and talk this out uh <laughs> you know um or coffee shop tea whatever i don't mind whatever. um because I, I think I think there are really big implications from this, um, and I think just a few off the top of my head. I, I think to introduce the this idea of different wills within God, um, deeply problematic, because the whole force of the gospel is that when I see Jesus welcoming in sinners you know, or washing the feet of his disciples, I am seeing the the revelation of who God is and what God wills and longs for the world. I'm not seeing just an expression of that. You know, I'm seeing the full thing. And I think that matters. I think this also matters because... I, I, I guess I'm just hesitant about this being pulled as a trump card... Um, in the complementarian debates and I think it does unhelpful things in the complementarian debates I think it to say that within the life of God 
there is this eternal submission. I don't, I'm not quite sure why, but I think probably makes something about femininity and submission absolute. And I think it, it, it almost hardens complementarianism and deforms it in a way that I feel a bit uncomfortable with. Um, I then just, I, mean, I think thirdly, um, it goes beyond what Ware and Grudem have suggested goes beyond what the church has historically said about adoption of the Trinity and the church has worked very long <laughs> and hard to be very careful about how we talk about the doctrine mm. of the Trinity. And I think it, it, we need to be very cautious in going, you know, departing from that. Yeah. And Grudem and Ware have done so under pressure on a debate about complementarianism, which I think is important, but I think is not as important as the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. And just reflecting on that, presumably um, for much of, much of church history, theologians have typically held some sort of complementarian um, position and have typically held uh, an orthodox position on the one willing God. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have friends who are egalitarians who likewise, you know, would would think that Grudem and Ware are, are, are dodgy on the doctrine of the Trinity and say, well, the church has never taught that before. And I kind of then say, well, the church has also held to complementarianism for quite a long time. Um, so, you, you know, there's an instance of having your cake and eating it. Um, I've probably said on this podcast before that 2000 years of church history might be wrong, but the bar for proving that it's wrong has to be pretty high. Awfully high, yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. One last question on this, if I may. Yeah. Um, what happens after the incarnation? Specifically, what's 1 Corinthians 15 talking about? <laughs> that it seems that, you know, when all the enemies are under Jesus' feet um, and he's king over everything, he then hands the kingdom over to the Father. Is that post-incarnation, you know, Jesus is now in a resurrection body. Has, has something changed? No, can't say that something's changed in God. <laughs> what's going on Who was I talking? somebody was talking to me about this the other day I'm trying to think this through a little bit myself so I'll have a punt but it's only a punt Simeon um, okay we won't hold you to it I think that uh, in the so in the ascension Jesus's human nature ascends um, to heaven whatever that means I, I that's a big mystery for me you know I, I believe jesus is still united to his body where is his body i'm not entirely sure um <clears throat> is that a change in god no it's a change in creation um and that creation is raised up um yeah and god doesn't god's nature his character um what he's about has not altered through the incarnation but how creation knows God and relates to God has. So it's a change in creation rather than a change in God. Has to be. Yeah. And in the eschaton, when Christ returns and all of his enemies are put under his feet and he hands the kingdom back over to the father, I think... 
there's something in that about how we I think Calvin talks about it in terms of we won't need Jesus to mediate God in the same way okay so we won't Christ is the head of the church and in the eschaton he he will still be the head of the church but we won't rely on him in the same way to know God because we will we will know God face to face Paul's kind of language I think it's it's something bound up with that um mm. that makes it different but I'm still working that out a little bit and you know whether I ever whether we any of us ever will get our heads around what that means um we will all share in Christ's perfect union with the Father. So, you know, we talked earlier on about the how the in in the incarnation, the um, you know, the union of human will and divine will is is manifested to us, is shown to us. Well, in in the in the new creation, all of creation will be perfectly expressing God's will. There will be no um no evil, no suffering, and obviously, obviously, God's still sovereign over those things here and now. Um, God's will is still being done in this age, but there will be a, a it, there will there won't be any sin. There'll be no suffering. It'll, it'll be perfect. Yeah. Um, his His reign will be perfectly visible. Yeah, and so I think, I think it maybe it's getting at something along those lines that the. The reign of God we now see, we, we, we see clearly in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. We will see it in all things in that moment. And so perhaps that's what it's speaking into. Cool. Well, we'll leave that as something to ponder. Um, <laughs> it's been brilliant, Matt. Thank you so much for um, talking through these things with us. Really helpful. My pleasure. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.